Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now today we're at the 11th, the next to last in our verse-by-verse sermon series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. Today we're in God's Word at Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. That's page 985 in your pew Bible. Now we've seen all through the Paul's letter to the Colossians that he's ministering to them in this problem of false teaching. This false teaching attempts to redefine the gospel by telling the Colossians that it is insufficient. Along the way, they were given new methods by these false teachers to somehow make up this insufficiency so that they might have a fullness in spiritual maturity. So we saw that Paul's antidote to false teaching is to explain the believer's union in Christ. In other words, that we must understand the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and so learn that we share in his fullness because we are in union with him. And that is how Paul sets out the grammar of the gospel in this letter. Because we are in union with Christ, we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We therefore have a new identity, a new attitude, and a new destiny. And so, because we are in union with Christ, we can overcome sin. And we are willing to do this, and we willingly limit ourselves in our lives because we know of the glory we have in Christ that awaits us. And that's where Paul goes in chapter 3. That's how he explains the nature of of the Christian life. That this deepening awareness of who we are in Christ Jesus squeezes out the old attitudes and practices that are manifested in our sinful condition. So we fill our minds with Christ, and so we gain a deepening awareness of the glory of Christ in our very lives. Now, in our study two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul steps up the magnification of that principle and says, let's look instead at the three most sensitive areas in a Christian's life, namely our marriage, our children, and our working relationships. Those were the acid test of the gospel. This is where he shows us that his teaching of the fullness of Christ, this awareness of what we have in Jesus Christ, makes the gospel really work. It truly transforms your life. We noted this, that there are six different relationships here. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, fathers to children, employee to employer, employer to employee. And we saw that the common element was the Lord Jesus. And we knew why that was, because our union with the living Christ is what it means to be saved. So he's applying this principle over and over again. We put to death 
our old self and its practices, and we put on the new self in Jesus Christ. And that's how he shapes all those relationships. They're all in Christ, where each one puts to death the old and is renewed in the new in Christ. Now, today's teaching reaches the conclusion of Paul's letter. And he continues his instruction to us. How does he do this? He does this in three related aspects of our speech. Now, this may astound us. Notice how it's not works of charity that he goes on, as if he was somehow going to go further in detail with these various relationships that he gave us uh, just in the paragraph above. Instead, it is our speech that is the measure of our maturity. And this is a biblical principle, and the evidence is very clear to this. You see, Paul confirmed this principle earlier in chapter 3 and verses 8 through 9. We saw how when we put away the old self, we put away anger and wrath, malice and slander, and obscene talk. We do not lie to one another seeing that we put off the old self. And that's what Jesus said as well, that it's our mouths that confirm what our hearts actually are, our true self. And likewise, the Apostle James wrote in James chapters 3 and 4 how the mature believer is the master of their tongue. The mature believer is the master of their tongue. Of their tongue. So we must learn this biblical principle here that regeneration in Christ, your union in Christ, changes the way you speak. Or to put it another way, Christians should speak differently from unbelievers who are still prisoners of this world. Now, why is that? Because your speech. There's a constant investigation of the orientation of your heart. It's a constant measure of the orientation of your heart. And that is Paul's point right here. He also wrote of this himself in chapter 2, how he struggled and labored for the Colossians' maturity to know the fullness of their Savior, Jesus Christ. And so now he presses home that same conclusion. That the measure of our maturity, this fullness that he hoped for the Colossians in chapter 2, will be reflected in the Colossians' way of speaking. And so Paul sets out here three different contexts of our speech in verses 2 through 6. The first, in verse 2 is in our speech to God. That is, how do you pray? The second, in verses 3 to 4, is in our speech for ministry. That is, what is your willingness to minister for the sake of the gospel? And the third, in verses 5 to 6, is our speech to others, specifically to unbelievers. That is, to what extent are you intentional in sharing the gospel. So let's go to number one, first of all. Our speech to God 
in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now notice how Paul sets out first what is the most important number one use of speech. It is prayer. Now why is that? Because the scriptures teach us that man was created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we express our adoration and our praise with our lips first. Do you know this verse of James Montgomery's wonderful hymn? Listen to these words here. It's, it's one of the verses in this hymn. Prayer is the Christian's vital breath. The Christian's native air, their watchword at the gates of death, they enter heaven with prayer. So Paul is asking us this afternoon, is prayer, my dear friends, your native air? Is prayer the atmosphere that fills your lungs to sustain you and exhales in new life? You know, many of us have been believers for many years, and we can see how we've grown, can't we, in our knowledge, our understanding of who we are in Jesus. But I think we would all admit that we are still just babies in our prayer life. I mean, how many of us would confess that there have been times in our lives when we have lived as the practical atheist? In other words, we've not prayed at all. So there's so much here we can learn from, my dear friends. There are three hallmarks of prayer here. Can you see them? The first is steadfastness. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now the force of the Greek verb here is to remain expectant, to be alert, to be on your toes, to be mindful of the time of day. And notice how he begins, continue. This is to be a regular pattern of our prayer life. Now, why are we to be expectant in our prayer life? What are we expecting anyway? Well, expectancy is the characteristic of our prayer life because we live in the latter days. Now, what are the latter days? Well, the latter days, or the last days, are the Bible's term for the period after our Savior's resurrection and ascension. Nothing, therefore, remains until his return. We are in the last days. So we are to grow, to hold on to the certainty of God's actions in saving us, looking expectantly for his working. So it's not a time of idleness or ease or casualness and sleep because the believer prays because he or she knows what time it is and is wise to the times. The consequence of being wise to the times, being steadfast, is the second hallmark. Do you see it there? It is to be watchful. Being watchful in prayer, you see. In other words, we're to keep a particular eye out for the needs of God's people 
in these latter days because we are told how the church will endure more persecution. And so we, as a church today, are a living testimony of watchfulness every time we drop to our knees to pray for the Kramers or those who are suffering in Syria and in Iraq. We are to pray for the needs of our brothers and sisters and their safety. And we're to look for signs of God's kingdom breaking out in places where there has been real spiritual blindness and darkness. And so we are to raise our voices in thanksgiving and praise that his kingdom is breaking out. He is answering our prayers. You see, that is how it's drawn together, as Paul does, with thanksgiving. It's thankfulness. Now, why is this the case? Because you're so aware of your own need of rescue. You're so overjoyed with its final prospect, its immediacy, its execution, that all these things around you popping here and there remind you that the time grows short. And so you gather this all together in your prayer life. That's been the theme in his letter. Paul's made this his own personal practice. You can just turn back and hold your thumb where we are today, back to chapter 1. And you can see Paul's prayer. Do you remember that? Way back at the beginning of the summer when it was still pretty cool outside, like it is today. And we have Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Now I'll go through it very quickly. Notice how there's steadfastness in verses 3 and 9. Steadfastness in 3 and 9. There's watchfulness in verses 6 and 10 and 11. And then there's thankfulness at the beginning in verse 3 and toward the end in verse 12. Indeed, you could actually say in the end that this is the pattern of prayer in the scriptures. All you have to do is spend time in the Psalms, and I hope you do. Because you'll see the same pattern of steadfastness and watchfulness and thankfulness in so many of the Psalms that is the great treasury for you and me in our worship and prayer. So ask yourself, my dear friend, how close is your pattern of prayer, this pattern? Now we go on to the second context of speech for ministry in verses 3 to 4. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now notice how Paul connects directly the effectiveness of his ministry with prayer. It's right there, isn't it? At the same time, you're doing what's in verse Verse 2, do the same for us, he's saying. And notice how he's characterized the purpose of prayer then for his ministry, that a door for the word of God is opened, a door to preach the gospel, a door for effective work. And what's the key to that open door? The key is prayer. Now, why is it prayer? It's because, my dear friends, God must unlock the door and open it. 
It is beyond the power of mortal man in his winsomeness and attractiveness, in his eloquence, to somehow make the spiritually dead alive. God must open the door. And this is how it's confessed in the early church in Acts chapter 14. Paul and Barnabas have returned and reported how the Gentiles, the dogs, have trusted Jesus Christ and been saved, and they praise God. In Acts 14, 27, because they say God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. You see, my dear friends, Paul wants to go where God is working. Your heavenly father gets there first. Only God can break a hardened heart. So, my dear friends... Many of us together have studied Christianity Explored. Many of us have learned two ways to live. We've read tactics together. But open doors are needed. The doors of our friends and our family, our workmates, are locked against the gospel because we are not using the key of prayer. 99 times out of 100, there is no opportunity for evangelism because the local church didn't steadfastly, watchfully, thankfully ask for an open door for the gospel. I mean, how aware are we of the latter days in our prayers for the lost? How steadfast are we? The lost who now hang as if by a thread over destruction. This is what Robert Murray McShane wrote. It was found amongst his papers after his death. As I was walking in the fields, the thought came over me with almost overwhelming power that every one of my flock must soon be in heaven or hell. Oh, how I wished that I had a tongue like thunder, that I might make all hear, or that I had a frame like iron, that I might visit everyone and say, Escape for thy life. Ah, sinners, you little know how I fear that you will lay the blame of your damnation at my door. He was a man of prayer, my dear friends. His life and diary is full of his time spent in prayer for the lost. And we must do the same. We must pray for open doors. Notice, though, how Paul is not just content to stop there, but he asks for prayer, for clarity in his message, that he might speak clearly of Christ and his work. And that's Paul's entire point in 2 Corinthians 4. Make that your homework. Go and reread 2 Corinthians 4, where he tells us, if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. That is the same God whose power made light out of darkness when he created the cosmos that brings light to the unbeliever's heart. Paul must preach the gospel clearly. And notice how it's not cleverness or eloquence, it's clarity. My dear friends, this is the resolution 
of every godly pastor's heart. It is the question they will ask themselves on Monday morning or with their spouse as they're traveling homeward. Was the gospel clear? Did I preach Christ clearly? Even if it causes trouble for them. You see, he is here he's saying we are not to seek trouble. But it means that when the gospel is clear, there will be trouble. Because the unbeliever's attack is directed to the messenger. When they hear the message. And so Paul indicates this as he says, On account of the clarity of my message, I am in prison. I am in chains. Paul is in Rome as a prisoner. But even here, as the prayers of the saints rise up for his ministry, he says this of his prison in Rome in Philippians 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You get that? His prison serves to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. That there were those right next to the emperor Nero himself in the imperial guard who had become believers because Paul was in chains. Because prayers cannot be chained. The gospel cannot be chained. To improve your sermons, we do not work harder as ministers, but we pray all the more. So my dear friends, I beg you, I implore you to pray for our worship here. Our ministry of music and the preaching of God's word that it will fulfill his promises and bring his fruit in souls saved for his kingdom. And thirdly, it's our speech to others in verses 5 to 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Lest your speech, oh, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now notice how Paul continues his emphasis on an open door for the word. And of prayer, as he says, we are to make the best use of the time. The time, right? Now we know what that is now, don't we? The translators of the ESV have helped us here. The time. The latter days. Be watchful. Be steadfast. In this time. We know what time it is. So what is the application for us? Well, that there is never a time in these latter days when our responsibility to the unbeliever can be put aside. We must always be praying for those we work with, for our family, for our friends, so that God will give opportunities for the gospel to be preached to them. We must always gladly take those opportunities. However much the circumstances are stacked against us, no matter what the consequences may be, that when an unbeliever gives us opportunities, we must always use even the most fleeting for some Christian response, some pebble in the shoe. 
And no matter how far off understanding they may be, we must seek wisdom and grace to answer them so that the appetite for Christ will awaken in them and they will want to know more. And that is to walk in God's wisdom according to his word, as Paul tells us here. It's to be gracious, he tells us, because Christ is gracious. His speech was gracious because of his settled joy in his relationship with his heavenly father. And so the believer has the same. Our graciousness as believers is not some human, vague, wishy-washy thing. It's the same settled joy that Jesus had, grounded in our union in him, and so surrounded and drenched in the Heavenly Father's love. So Christian joy is never casual, based on circumstance. It is always serious, because it's grounded in the eternal realities of who we are in Christ and the everlasting love we have from our Heavenly Father. Because your joy is in Him, there is an attractiveness. There is something in you, in your speech, that an unbeliever will hear. Because your speech, my dear friends, does what? It exposes the attitude of your heart. And if that is in Christ, it cannot help but be known by those who hear how you speak. And then there is a salt. What does he mean by that? The lingering taste of Christ that comes from your speech and is left in the unbeliever's life. My dear friends, when was the last time you were asked about your faith in Christ? Has it been some time? If so, follow Paul's check here on your speech. How does my faith in Christ rest in the savor and in the grace of how I speak? You see, my dear friends, Jesus washes our lives, and he certainly washes our mouths. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.